Welcome to Public Safety Talk Radio, the podcast for all our heroes in public safety, including law enforcement professionals, firefighters, EMTs, corrections officers, healthcare workers, and more. This show is produced by the POCUA and is founded upon its Soundness Initiative. This episode is also sponsored by the POCUA, a consortium of financial institutions serving law enforcement as well as other first responders and public safety professionals. Always remember, if you aren't banking with a POCUA credit union, you're just working with an institution that just so happens to serve public safety professionals, and you deserve better. Hi, I'm Ken Bader, your host for Public Safety Talk Radio, and we have another great guest today, one that is going to hit on the professional pillar specifically for all of our law enforcement friends out there. Let me tell you a bit about him. His name is Brian Leslie, and he is a former chief of police and nationally recognized expert in coercive interrogation and interview techniques, so I'm going to watch my questioning today, that's for sure. He has conducted more than 2,000 interviews and interrogations during his 14-year career in policing. He testifies regularly and is qualified as a forensic expert in state, federal, and military courts throughout the United States. He will educate our listeners on how and why people confess to crimes they do not commit. Interesting. And we're also going to dig into what makes a great interrogation for all you law enforcement professionals out there. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? I'm awesome. Even better now that you're on. Yeah, good. good. <laughs> so, yeah, I think this is my first interview with a chief of police or former chief of police. So, I'm excited about it. Really, in the realm of tapping into a lot of your expertise. But before we get into interviews and interrogations, why don't we start by talking about your book? I understand you wrote Deception of a Witness. Tell me a little bit about the motivation for writing writing it, and uh, what what was really the crux of that publication? Well, Deception of a Witness and actually Visual Liar, which is my other book, um, they were basically based on, when I was in my police career, I'm going to go back into my early days of policing. Please. And what I had done at that point is I had specialized and spent a lot of time taking courses in analytical investigative methods. And one of the things I really had a problem with was the idea that this concept in policing that witnesses, um, you should believe a witness or you should, you know, you shouldn't take, go beyond what would be the normal to vet a witness. So witnesses and victims, um, I had a tendency to be a little bit more than the normal law enforcement when it came to accepting a victim story or, or a witness's story. And so I developed a, um, a methodology called reaction analysis profiling. And what that simply was, was it was a methodology I created for the purposes of watching body language and learning how to pattern body language and learning when there's flags going up with specific um, tells in that. Mm -hmm. And so I would look at the eyes, I'd look at the head and look at the, the mouth and I had done a lot of research into this because actually what happened was um, the, I tested against polygraph all the time. And sometimes polygraph wasn't as accurate as my, as, uh, as long as you pattern the body language, because what a lot of people don't realize is body language is very much, and I studied body language for quite a while and actually tested and have, have lots of lots of data as to show that, that it's like DNA where it's unique to the individual. 
Hmm. Just, you know, people will say, well, because you cross your arms, this means this. No, it doesn't actually at all. Um, what I used to do was I used to have somebody take a, um, basically an individual and interview them and I wouldn't be in the room. I wouldn't know any, anything about it. Just nothing about a, a criminal act or anything like that, just about their life or whatever. Sure. And so what I used to do is then I would take those put and they were done on high quality video. So what I used to do then is take them. I would, the questions are like usually 45 questions and what I, and they're actually in my book. You can actually see the, the actual um, stills from the video. And I would take, Interesting. The, I would take the, the beginning, the middle and the end of the question. So let's say question number 36, the, the opening, the, when they first start answering the question or when the question's being asked, what their reaction is, when they're answering the question, when they first go into the question, and then the ending of the question when they're actually ending and they're, and they're doing a settling position. And what I found was there would be questions that would be specific to um, personal things about themselves. There would be general questions like age and where did you go to school that they wouldn't lie about. And then I would look, ask for specific questions that I knew they'd be embarrassed to, to tell. And they, most people wouldn't tell these, the truth on these types of questions. And so then I would look at them and I would take, um, I would do stills, uh, snapshots of every one of them. And I would then place them on a, on a floor with, um, with all my, um, the questions above it. And they were very high quality. So I could look at these, the almost like headshots. And so I would take specific types of questions, like for example, the ones that were truthful and in that individual, what I would see is the exact eyes, the way they were, they were looking in a certain direction, the way that their mouth was and their head tilt was a certain way. And they all had similarities in the exact type of questions that you were asking. So you could actually then at that point, um, derive the tells from when they were deceptive, when they were trying to be deceptive. And those were usually questions that were subjective in nature, like you're talking, asking about a, a, you know, a spouse or somebody like that, where they don't want to give you a lot of information and they're trying to think about the question before they answer it because they're trying to be somewhat deceptive, of, but right. misleading, but they didn't know why they were in there asking, being asked to you, they'd be, I pay them for these, for these interviews. And as I found, each individual has a unique, almost like a DNA to their tells and much like uh, in a polygraph that you, you would go in and uh, um, you'd, you'd base the tells on the polygraph and then you basically everything is used as a as a instrument after that would determine whether you were deceptive or not so i didn't do this for the purposes of of talking to suspects i did this for the purpose of witnesses mm -hmm. because i believe that um and i had because i had experience with a couple of sex assault cases where i had actually um, because I was a chief at the time, um, I was able to send them to a polygraph because I just, and everything was fine with the witnesses, but I just, I got them to sign off on the idea that they, they were victims. They came forward and they said that they wanted to, you know, lay, uh, lay a complaint. And at first I took the first complaint, 50 page statement, whatever, um, waited two weeks, took another statement. And it was very clear, um, that, you know, everything was intact, but, but there was something a little too polished with it yeah so then i would i sent it to the polygraph unit the polygraph unit said yeah they'll do it as long as she signs off on it no problem so they did that um and i she had to go down and she totally willingly to do it so she the first one that i did was she come she went down there and uh 
I called, they called me back that evening. They said, chief, she's totally telling the truth. I said, okay. I said, what was the, what was the results of the polygraph? Well, the polygraph was broken. We couldn't and talk to her. And, and so I said, no, 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 no. I need to have the polygraph. I, I, it was more for the interest of finding out what the polygraph results were. Mm -hmm. So, so when I did that, I actually went in and I said, uh, I said to her again, I said, you know, there was a mistake with the polygraph. You know, would you be willing to do that again? You don't have to. So, oh, no, absolutely. I'll go down. No problem. And um, so she went down and uh, the polygraph, actually, she passed the polygraph, but they had told her that she failed. And then she came clean with everything. Wow. She was, she was a sociopath. So they called me back and um, said, no, she actually passed the polygraph, but we told her she failed. And then we, we asked her further questioning in it. And then she broke down and told us the whole story and was a situation because uh, basically it, it had been a situation where she had an affair with the guy. Her husband caught her and said, basically, if you don't, uh, if, if you're not having an affair, then you were actually attacked and then you better report it to the police to right. save her marriage. That's what she did. So as a result of it, um, and I had, and the reason why I had even sent her to a polygraph in the first place was because I had originally had my, my, I was still testing out reaction analysis profiling at the time. And, and it was showing me that every indication for body language was she was being deceptive. So, because I had already baseline on it. So, um, so that was a good uh, uh, step forward in what I was doing. And so I used yeah. to use this for um, witnesses. And then I developed another thing called the dominant witness theory. And uh, I, uh, the dominant witness theory, I've actually done a lot of articles on that. I, in fact, I teach that to a lot of attorneys on the dominant witness theory. And the idea is that when you go to a, um, to a multi-witness event, what's the first thing that you should ask any witness? And most people and most officers would say, well, I'd ask them, what did they see? You know? And the real question should be, who did you speak to before I arrived? Because mm -hmm. what happens with the dominant witness, witnesses are by themselves before police arrive on any multi-witness event, whether it's an accident, whether it's a shooting, whether it's anything. And one of the things that the dominant witness will do is they'll always talk to the other witnesses. And other witnesses that are subordinate type witnesses will will allow the dominant witness to feed them information where they they second guess their own information and it becomes at that point it becomes a, a narrative interjection so they start injecting the narrative into other other witnesses for example and i've done a lot of testing in this area too i did a lot of uh, uh what i did about 35 40 um uh it are uh basically lectures with 35 people. Mm -hmm. And I would bring them under different context of what I was doing, um, different ones, different times. And, but usually 35 people in a room. And what I would do is I'd put up three uh, mugshots. <clears throat> excuse me. And in those mugshots, I would say, I would leave them up for about 20 minutes. I wouldn't even come in the room. They would be up on the overhead. And, and uh, the, inter, the people in the room would be Pay, looking at them, they don't know why they're there even, and they think they're there for something else, and they're just kind of interested in looking at the, the mugshots. <coughs> Excuse me. And so what would happen at that point was I'd come into the room, I'd turn off the overhead, and the mugshots would be gone. And I would start then appealing to their egos. And what I would say to them is, you know, how many here think that they're great in recall? And of course, right away, everybody, about 15 or 20 <laughs> of everybody wants to be amazing with recall. Sure. They want to be that person that, that is the center of attention and it attracts ego. So 
Then I'd say, but I bet you none of you could saw that there in suspect number two, I bet you nobody saw in suspect number two that there was a hexagon shaped tattoo with um, some markings on the inside. How many do you, th how many of you actually saw that? And you'd have out of that 15 or 20 that put up their hand, you'd get maybe Apple. eight or nine. Hmm. And I'd say, oh, I got to take a call. I'll be back, back shortly. And so I'd leave the room and I'd listen to them. And the dominant witness or the dominant person in the room would start interjecting and arguing and demeaning the people that thought they saw something else. Hmm. And by the time I went back in there, what would happen is they would all about out of that 15, maybe eight, seven, now all of a sudden remember the tattoo. They can't necessarily describe the tattoo, but they do remember markings in the inside of the tattoo. So I'd talk about something for about half an hour. And then I'd stop and I'd say, look, you know what? It amazes me, you guys are just so incredible. I says, I, you guys are, I was very surprised you were able to find the tattoo, but I bet you nobody saw the two dots in the middle. <laughs> and I'd be more specific on the tattoo. Yeah. And I said, oh, I just a sec, I've got to go get something. I'll be right back. And I'd listen to them again. And they're arguing about who saw it and who saw the dots. And then the, the, the dominant in the room would be interjecting their version of, yeah, the dots were right by the sides. Didn't you see them? Didn't you see them? What's wrong with you? It was the obvious. And I come back and maybe four or five of those people then would all of a sudden um, remember there was a couple of dots, that they did see yeah. some dots. And so at the end of it, I would then end and I would put up the three mugshots again. And boy, there's no, there's no tattoo on any of them. But I was accused of putting up the wrong mugshot, trying to deceive them, um, that there was actually a tattoo. Um, that the, the, and I said, no, there's no tattoo. There was nothing. And this is in an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. So, so it sounds like that not having ever been in law enforcement personally, mm -hmm. it sounds like there's both an art and a science to, to this interrogation and really getting to the truth. Is that a, a good way of looking at it or am okay. I off base? Uh, well, you know, some people, everybody has their own thing they like to do in policing. Sure. And I found that, you know, and one of the things that I was, I, I always had a real problem with it and it was more of a, a curiosity was because I was always told in my police career, you know what, if the state, if the witness signed the statement, what are you complaining about? What do you, what do you, why are you challenging it? And I used to get kind of put back by that because I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a second, this individual is signing a statement against somebody that potentially may go to jail for some mm -hmm. period of time. I think I got to be a little bit more than just accept their word for it without doing any vetting. Now, keep in mind, you're very busy. You've got a lot of cases and right. blah, blah, blah. And it's not, not in every case can you go out and vet, vet, vet. So what I did was I would always make a point, especially on more serious type cases, that I would take that extra um, ability to go out and understand that witnesses were, and that was called the inductive method. Now a word from our sponsor, the Police Officers Credit Union Association. The POCUA can suggest a credit union that serves public safety professionals in practically every state in the country. One state we definitely have covered is Colorado. Rocky Mountain Law Enforcement Federal Credit Union has been serving members of Colorado law enforcement and their families since 1938. They're more than a bank. They're a community united by the thin blue line. 
For more information about Rocky Mountain Law Enforcement Federal Credit Union, go to www.rmlefcu.org or call 303-458-6660. To find an institution to serve you in any of the other 49 states, go to policecreditunions.com. And always remember, if you aren't banking with a POCUA credit union, you're just working with an institution that just so happens to serve public safety professionals, and you deserve better. So I would use an inductive method of investigation, not a deductive, which simply meant that, um, that what I do is I, I, I vet all information. I look at the information. I accept it all. I vet it. I vet the source of the information, how the information was pre pre um, presented to me. And then I vet the credibility of the sources. And if I have questions about the credibility, then I corroborate evidence that would support their version of the events. Or if I saw that there was no version of events or that there was a, a miss, uh, that there was a, a conflict, I would then reinvestigate further if I could, if I could find more things about it. Um, and based on that, I draw inferences. And based on those inferences, you draw reasonable conclusions. That's the way I used to do investigations. And more than enough times, I would take what would look like a perfectly credible individual, a bank manager or somebody like that, that would, that you think would be totally credible. And it has nothing to do with their line of work. It's just that that's what they do. They're wearing a suit. There's a right. presumption of them being somewhat credible. And automatically as a human being, you just accept certain people because of the way they're dressed, because of the way their demeanor is, because they're very articulate, because they're able to talk about, you know, what they saw and they're not, and you've no reason to actually question that. But I always found the best way to do it is create a second or third um, type of questioning that you would ask that they would never understand, but you would ask because you would bluff them in certain areas to see if in fact they're on their, on their game. And as a result of it, I was, I, I always felt that if I didn't do that, if I didn't do my job in getting and vetting witnesses and vetting victims properly, I, I stood a better chance of having individuals um, getting convicted of things that they should never have been convicted right. or even charged with in the first place. Yeah. In interesting. Interesting. That's a good segue um, into my next question, as I was reviewing, uh, I believe it was your website or your bio or some of your information, um, I picked up on something to the effect that an interview and an interrogation are two completely different things, that they're not necessarily synonyms. Can you talk to that a little bit? What sure. is the well, difference? Yeah, okay. So uh, an interview, in, in essence, is a, um, a fact-finding. Okay, it's fact finding. It's done in a in a usually an informal type setting, but it's usually as part of an investigation. Now people get confused of what's an interrogation and what's the difference between an interview and an interrogation. The interrogation generally there there's visual ways to look for an interrogation. It's in your personal space, but it also is accusatory in nature. And the the obvious portion of going into an interrogation is the presumption of guilt. And, and here's where people make that huge mistake. And this is where I have, I have confessions suppressed all the time in court um, when I testify only because they hadn't done, and I look at it, I always explain it this way. You gotta put icing on a cake once it's baked, but you can't mm -hmm. put it on before it's baked. So why are you putting icing on the cake before it's baked? So if you didn't do the investigation properly and you didn't vet your witnesses properly, 
and you didn't go to those extremes to look at exculpatory evidence properly, then you may not have the information that you think is correct. So when you're talking in an interview or an interrogation slash interview with a potential accused person or a person of interest or a person that you're, you, you believe is a, a suspect, it's your truth you're talking about. And then you can't figure out why this guy is not admitting to certain things. Well, it's, you got to look back on the investigation. Did you accept all information in the case? Did you accept it or did you just pretend to accept it? Or did you think it wasn't relevant? I accept all information, even if it's a piece of information that may not have anything to do with anything. There may be a reason down the road why that information is there. And if you can't tie it back to something, that's fine. It's still there. It's still out there. So you have to consider all the information when you do an investigation. The, the whole point of bringing a suspect in to interrogate them, I'm not talking about arresting them, I'm talking about right. interrogating them, is the fact that you've already baked the cake that you shouldn't need. And the, and the primary element of an interrogation is it's the icing. You shouldn't need it without, you can still eat the cake without it. Right. You should be able to prove your case without the icing. Interesting. And so based on that, you should have gone into that interrogation knowing full well that in fact, all the evidence that you have, because when you present it to a real accused person or a person inside of an interrogation room, generally speaking, it, that interrogation will last maybe two hours, two and a half hours. And that individual already knows they're in a no hope situation that there's right. more than sufficient evidence that's been already laid out. The people are testifying, are already gave statements against them. They saw it, they've got video of them doing this, doing that. Maybe they have an explanation, that's fine. But the bottom line is you don't have to try that hard. You don't have to use coercive methods hmm. to extract a confession from someone. And when I talk about coercive methods, I'm talking about minimizing, maximizing. And yes, you can use some of those. Those are techniques that are used all the time. And you can even go so far as to um, encourage a person to come forward, maybe because it's an embarrassing uh, an embarrassing type of charge, um, a sex offense case of some sort. So yeah, there's a rapport building, but you shouldn't have to use extreme measures and excessive coercion to pull a person that's in total denial. Listen to the denial, listen to what he's saying. If you say you didn't do it, what do you think? Where do you think I should look? Why do you think that this, this occurred then? What is your version of why you think this occurs? Not that you're not telling me the truth. I just want to hear the truth. Mm -hmm. It's your truth that you want to hear. It's what your narrative is that you may or may not have done a good investigation on. And every law enforcement, and I'm telling you this, even myself, you have an ego. Yeah. And when you do an investigation, you don't want anybody, you think you've done the right investigation. And I mean, first, I'm the first one to admit that there was times when, yeah, okay, night shift was just about over. And <laughs> maybe I should have dotted a few more I's and crossed a couple more T's. And then a year and a half later in court, I'm sitting there going, duh. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it happens. But the bottom line is you have to, in serious cases, take the time, take the time to do the proper investigation. Witnesses and victims don't always tell the truth. Children don't always tell the truth. People don't always tell the truth. Credible people don't always tell the truth. Okay, these are things that that are are natural and human. So you have to assume 
that you have and build a certain way of a methodology that you use to to get to the truth, the real truth, not and that should be based by evidence. Mm -hmm. Now, now, do you always tell the truth, Brian? Nobody does. <laughs> Good answer. And here I've told you I wasn't going to throw a curveball. No, that's fine. <laughs> Nobody does. People, well, you, lie. People lie when it's in their favor. Right. Right. Sometimes, sometimes. Uh, I'm of the opinion that sometimes people don't even know how much of a lie they're telling no. you know, that, that they, they think it's something that they've created a truth in their mind, which really isn't reality. Have mm. you come across that as well? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, and I'm going to, I won't say the name of the show, but there's a, sure. a saying I always like is, is in a particular comedy that I used to watch um, regularly. And uh, one of the things that one of the characters would say to the other it's not a lie if you believe it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. And, that's, and that's true of a sociopath too. Yeah. So if you believe the lie and, and a year later, it's, it's basically called reconstructed memory. Mm -hmm. And that's what in fact happens in, in, um, uh, with witnesses, especially when times have, uh, time has gone by. The fact is, is that they've been told the story many times. Mm -hmm. And the story has been told maybe by them and maybe they've had conversations with their friends about the incident. And over a period of a year and a half, two years, that incident is become reconstructed. And so yeah. you're only remembering certain parts of it, but you remember also other things that didn't happen and it became truth in that period of time. So you have to assume that you can't take somebody from, from 10 years ago. And if you get five people that tell the same, that were in the same place and they tell the same story, it's never going to be identical. Yeah. Interesting. So I've, uh, while never having been a first responder personally, as a civilian, I appreciate all law enforcement, but I will say that, you know, I've seen uh, quite the gamut over the last 15 years of let's say professional and intelligence and then maybe not so much uh, fortunately more has been <laughs> of the former uh rather than the latter but you know as as with you know you have good doctors and doctors that aren't so good um you have the same thing in in policing um you know some folks that that really do appreciate their craft um, and others that, as you say, they have a job and night shift is just about over and I want to go home and Jack in the Box closes at 2 a.m. So I need okay. to leave now. So in terms, in terms of, of what you see out there from your experience, what are some of the biggest pitfalls? What are the, some of the biggest mistakes in policing when it comes to interviews and interrogations? Oh, when I, when I go through, I mean, and like I say, I, I get probably submitted to me literally um, probably nine homicides a day, um, some sex offenses a day, and I don't take all of them, obviously. I work with a lot of public defenders offices, uh, federal, state, and uh, military. Um, and one of the things that I look at, and a lot of times in the, in the lawyer cases, particularly not the, uh, not the post-conviction cases, but the, well, even those ones, but what happens a lot of the time and you and you look at these things and I look at them and I go, this was a no brainer. Uh, what were you thinking when you did this? <laughs> the evidence is sitting right there. And when I go and reverse engineer everything, and of course, what I do is because I'm a coercive interrogation expert, I don't just look at the interrogation. The, the confession is a product of coercive interrogation. 
you know, and this is the difference is when you look at why did you confess and you go back and you re reverse engineer everything down to the, the specific um, uh, interviews that were with the victims. And I go back and I analyze, you know, with child, uh, child uh, sex assaults and things like that. I look at, um, you know, how was the interview conducted? Was there narrative interjection? Was there narrative, uh, were they feeding narratives to certain, uh, to kids? Was, you know, who had contact with these witnesses or victims? Who, who had conversations? Why wouldn't you as an investigator go back and verify if they, for example, you have a, a child sex assault, but then you realize that there's a, um, a divorce in the middle of all this. Why wouldn't you go in and then start investigating at least looking at potential other motives mm -hmm. and then do other types of interviews to verify certain things? When I go back into some of these cases and I say to myself, I'm looking at them and it's, it's right there. It's right, it's right in the interview. But you, but you, as the interviewer, as soon as the question was asked, the answer came back to you, you didn't, you switched the, the topic because you didn't want to answer that question or you didn't want to know the answer to it. That's what obviously happened in certain things. Now we're not even talking about the interrogation at this point. We're still now building the case, how this individual got charged in the first place. And so as a result of that, you are not listening or not wanting to listen to certain types of exculpatory evidence that you might get out of this individual, maybe they're going to say, yeah, I was told this by my older sister. I was told to do this by my older sister. Or, or, or yeah, I, um, you know, I was told I, I, I shouldn't say this or I shouldn't do this. Were you ever, you know, and ask and you shall know the answer, you know, and that's why don't be afraid to get any exculpatory information out there. Because even if there's exculpatory information out there, you, the person may still have committed an offense, but at least you put it all on the table. Right. So that when you do the investigation, you've covered all those angles. So when you go into a suppression hearing with a confession, yes, he did do it because this is why. This is the witness. And yes, I did ask this question with the witness and I investigated what the witness told me exculpatory, but it didn't make sense. So I went back and, and that person had said this, this, and this. So you've got it covered. That's called an investigation. Do it. <laughs> That's what you're paid for. <laughs> so yeah, when, when, these, when things aren't done properly, do you find that it's because possibly of a lack of training of the law enforcement professionals or is it possibly, you know, stress or even, no. even frankly, just, you know, I, I, I don't want to work that hard. What, what do you find yeah. when, when you, when you get to, yeah, this them. just wasn't done right. You know, what, what's them. the reason? All of them. Um, I think, I think for the most part, I think there's a, an issue where they have done this a long time. They feel comfortable doing it. They think, and they really believe in their mind that they've covered every angle. I don't, I don't think for a moment they purposely go out and not ask questions. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, especially when the, in the context where I see it, and I say to myself, you know, it, it's, like, it's, like a, um, it's like a weekend quarterback. You know, you go back, you should have thrown a pass, but maybe at the time you didn't see it. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. But at the same token, you can always go back and look at your interviews because you have them on video 90, 99.9% .9 of the time for the most part. And you can go back and look and do exactly what I do. Look at it, reverse engineer it. 
is there anything you asked him in that question or a, any witness, doesn't matter if it's a victim, a witness, whatever. And is there anything in that video that you potentially should have asked that maybe you didn't ask? Mm -hmm. And, or you see that, yeah, I made a mistake here. I saw that he, that he basically, um, he segued into a different topic when I asked him this. Now, I wanna bring him back in again and I'm gonna make a note of all these things and I'm gonna let him look at his interview and I'm gonna let him look at his own interview and say, hey, what's with that? You know, yeah. well, uh, uh, is it possible maybe it didn't happen? Is, it, is that possible? Well, maybe. And maybe it's possible because this witness has already told me that you guys have already had a problem together, that you guys have been in, in this dispute for a long time. Isn't that correct? Well, yeah. And so you're getting back at them. Yeah. Simple as that. So if you segue back into those and you do your investigation and you have all the knowledge in the world, when you walk into that interrogation, you already know it's the presumption of guilt. You've already baked the cake and the cake's very nice and tasty. It's not just a cake. Mm -hmm. That icing you're going to put on it is just going to make it easier to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I'm learning a lot. Speaking of learning a lot, you are, based on your experience and expertise, especially mm -hmm. for some of our, our folks in law enforcement that may just be starting their career, maybe a year or two in, what are some of the best practices? What are some of the things that they should be learning or thinking about in order to build these cases properly so they don't run into issues later, whether it's a, a wrongful conviction uh, or somebody that truly should be convicted, but they wind up with egg on their face when, when they go to court? One of the things that's the most, I think the hardest thing to uh, and as a police officer, I used to have to discipline myself to do it. And I actually had to force myself to do it is when you walk into anything, you, it's like going to the gym every day. You have to remove yourself from the drama. You have to remove any of your preconceived notions of what is you have to all your biases that everybody has biases. Mm -hmm. Everybody has dislikes. Everybody has things that they are not proud and they would never admit to in public. But you, when you walk into a scenario of any kind, you have to be able to remove yourself from the drama, the narrative, and start from ground zero building evidence. And here's why. And it's easier said than done because I know I used to have to walk around and purposely I would, almost like going to the gym, I used to have to if I found I already had a preconceived notion of an individual, like for, I, I'll use a domestic as a good example. Mm -hmm. Let's say I'm an officer that I've seen a lot of domestics. I empathize with women that are getting beaten or getting abused. I, I walk in and I see, I, get a, I go to a domestic, which you go to many of, and I have this preconceived notion that I really dislike guys that beat their, their wives or their girlfriends or whatever. And I walk in and the, complaint is already from the female that she's been uh, struck a few times and you go in with a partner she we separate them um he's angry he's he's big he looks like he could you know he could tackle you even um and <laughs> so when you walk in there and you're telling him and the guy says no you know that that's me whatever um you've already got that preconceived notion this guy's violent yeah drop it that may not be the case at all. It, he may be violent, but it may not be this time. Right. 
And it's possible she could have came out at him with a knife or a pen or something. Exactly. <laughs> but until you open your mind to even a even a individual that's not cooperative, there may be reasons for that. But it may not be what you think it is. But you may think A and A, he's angry. That uh, you make sense that this guy would have beaten her. You've got to walk in there. And I used to have to literally walk sometimes away from it come back into it because I already had that preconceived notion. And I trained myself to do that. And I do that even with these cases. I walk into these things, I follow the evidence. I know what I'm looking at. I know, I know what I'm looking for. I know where, um, I've done this a lot. I know where the digital bodies are buried. Um, I know where, you know, police culture is taken over versus common sense. Yeah. I know where um, certain trigger words are used by victims, trigger words are used even by potential uh, clients that may have deceived the lawyers thinking that they were not guilty. Uh -huh. um, and so as a result of that, I go in with an open mind. And I literally had to force myself many, many times to do that. It's a training that you actually have to, it's like going to the gym every day. You actually have to physically do it because if you don't, you will automatically segue into that. And it's, and one of the things that I always recommend to, um, to officers when they say, you know, younger officers, when you start your career, take a lot of analytical investigative method courses. Hmm. It's like, it's like a, an analyst. When you go in as an intelligence analyst and you are looking at everything, you're looking at it for what it is and the value and what the truth is about it. And ACH is a good example. The analysis of competing hypothesis was a was a um, was a strat or was a uh, formula that was used a methodology that was used back in the Central Intelligence Agency back in '45. It was declassified or something like that, and that really talks tells you a lot about to walk in and draw inferences. Look at what you have. Don't look at what you want to have, and don't believe that when you're looking at something that it's what you hope it is because Hope is not truth. Mm -hmm. And when you walk into what you hope you've got, and let's face it, you do six weeks of an investigation, you think you're going to wrap it up and you find some wrench that just fell into it because of some exculpatory evidence, more than likely you're going to ignore it because it's yeah. not going to make you look good. Get your, you know, remove your ego. Yeah. Walk in and say, you know what? I found this at the last minute. Thank God for that. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of what I tell some of my business clients. Hope is not a strategy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brian, I could talk to you for probably another hour because uh, be, it's, it's very interesting and being a, uh, a true crime fan myself, you know, getting into some of these details, I, I find very insightful. Uh, but last question I have for you for now is for all of our folks out there that are either listening or watching that really need to tap into your expertise, whether it's to hire you or for training or your books or, or anything along those lines, how can they best find you out there? Well, I mean, basically you can, you can go to my website at www.criminalcaseconsultants.com. Um, I'm very easy to find. Uh, you just Google my name, Brian Leslie, uh, expert, and uh, come up all over the place. Um, and uh, like I say, I don't do any training specifically, but you know, I do, I have opened it up for 
Um, and I do have a, a site for um, uh, police agencies that I am very prepared if they want. I haven't got any calls yet, but I mean, anytime they want to get some consulting advice, I don't even charge for that. I'm prepared to, to if you got a situation that you're kind of coming up against and you want to make sure it's done right, give me a call. If I'm around, I'll, I'll, be, I'll walk you through it. Awesome. No great. charge. Yeah, great, great offer. I may take you up on that just because I'm interested, not because I have any big cases or anything I need yeah. to solve. <laughs> but Brian, it was such a pleasure speaking with you today. Very, very insightful conversation. Thank you for taking some time with us. I appreciate it. <laughs> Pleasure's been all mine. Thank you again. And thank you to all of you who have either watched or listened to this episode of Public Safety Talk Radio. And we will be back with you in about a week with another great guest. Take care. Public Safety Talk Radio is produced by the POCUA. POCUA is a consortium of financial institutions serving law enforcement as well as other first responders and public safety professionals. To learn more about our association and to find one of our credit unions or service providers near you, go to www.policecreditunions.com. And always remember, if you aren't working with one of our POCUA credit unions, you're just banking with an institution that just so happens to serve first responders. As a public safety professional, you and your family deserve better. Find a POCUA credit union today.